Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. You can find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. I'm not going to deny any of that. Um, <laughs> Mom of Clayton, wow, that's a, that's right on up there, isn't it? And Mom of Bo, what about that? Yeah, <laughs> if you know Bo, that's uh, there. There is that. I'm also <laughs> um, also wife of John. You should be clapping right now. Just yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you do what you do together, right? And, and sometimes uh, when I think back about the early days of this congregation and uh, how, <laughs> what that was like, um, what that looked like, um, interesting that um, the man that God gave me to um, live my life with, to be... Uh, connected with forever, um, was willing to make that plunge to uh, that calling that you have on your life uh, impacts a lot of people, your kids, your husband, lots of people. They have to be willing to, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I, hmm, uh, I don't know if my slides made it. Yes, no, they didn't. Okay. So I, t- emailed slides to Bethany and anyway they didn't come the PowerPoint's not there so we're gonna it's all right are you visual learners let's see your hands if you're visual learners tough (laughs) I'm sorry uh yeah we it usually helps uh about half of the congregation to have something um to be focused on while we're learning but that's okay um you know as I told the gentleman, if they come through, that's wonderful. If not, we're still friends at the end of the day. If that's the worst thing that happens to any of us today, mm-hmm. thank you, Jesus. We'll be on good, good grounds. Well, I uh, titled today's message, Things Too Marvelous for Words. Um, so uh, when was the last time that you marveled at something? Hmm. What makes you marvel? What is it that captures you sometimes and you just marvel? Uh, I made a slide that showed the good. You know, to me, nothing like a sunset to make me marvel. And boy, if if that sun is setting, I used to think the sunset over the Atlantic was beautiful until I saw the sunset over the Pacific. Hmm, that's what I said. There's the good, there's, you know, the beauty of little babies. Most of the time, I mean, sometimes there's some ugly babies, but we, you know, um, as pastor, you learn when you go in those rooms where, 
you know, mom has had a baby and it's just as ugly as sin. You just, um, you just say, oh, how precious, right? Because they are that. So uh, don't invite me to come see your baby if you don't, if, if you don't want the, the awful truth. <laughs> no. Uh, but, you know, those are things that we marvel at. We marvel at the bad. We marvel at the horrendous Hitler, right? We marvel at Hurricane Dorian, who ripped and romped down through the Bahamas and just tore up Jack. We marvel at the ugly, um, you know, that A for Alabama this time of year. I was... I, I, <coughs> um, Cody, bless him, bless him, bless him. And then there's a, and then there's that uh, that orange thing that looks that can be kind of ugly. Uh, even if they win, it's ugly usually, and it, and that hardly ever happens. And and then there's the weird. You know, we shake our head at the weird sometimes. The last picture I saw of Cam Newton in his new look, with the headscarf on, and you know, mm, that's weird. I'm sorry, I don't know. That's just weird. Um, so, am I the only one who marvels at things? Tell you what, I'm going to give you about three minutes. Turn to the person next to you and talk about something that m- makes you marvel. What was it? Go ahead. This is your time. Well, there you go. There's your time. Um, one thing about real life from the very beginning days when I would give the congregation time to do this, to interact, nobody ever wanted to stop. So, so the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. So all of you marvel. We all do. It's not that uncommon for people to marvel, to just be um, blown. After all, look at us. We're we're undeserving recipients of innumerable marvelous blessings every day. Am I the only one? No, it's for sure. We live in a pretty marvelous environment, actually. It, whatever comes or goes, still, it's marvelous. Created by a marvelous God. Uh, surrounded by marvelous people. At least I am. Some days it's a shaking your head, mm. I don't quite get it, but marvelous nonetheless. We have a marvelous Savior, and we have access to our marvelous Savior every day. And we have a marvelous 
future to anticipate as believers. So lots of marvel. Not that even in Scripture, I've noticed so many times where people um, there's passages where it's noted that people marvel. Um, the disciples marveled all the time, and rightly so. Um, in Matthew 9:33, it said the multitude marveled. So that meant the whole group marveled at one time. In Mark 15:5, it says that Pilate marveled. He got stopped in his tracks. In Revelation 13:3, John states that there will be a time when the whole world will marvel. Everybody. So it's not that uncommon. But the other day as I was reading, um, I came across a passage where Jesus marveled. Um, I, I was immediately intrigued and I wanted to know how often does that happen? That the creator God of the entire universe who has not only seen it all but created it all, was, has there ever been another time when that caused Jesus to marvel? As I looked and looked, I only found two instances where scripture records that Jesus marveled. And we're going to look at one of those today. And from what I understand, in a couple of weeks, you're going to have an eminent theologian with you to bring a message. And he and I have collaborated already. And he, I think he's going to be teaching on that other instance where Jesus marveled. So there's you something to look forward to. But we're going to look at this one passage today. We're going to look at it up close. Um, and if you brought your Bible, brought your sword with you, or your smartphone, either one, as long as you stay off Facebook, I'm going to let you have your smartphone out today. Um, Matthew 8, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 is where we're going to uh, begin our reading, 5 through 13. And we're going to read it together, and then we'll dive in and see if there's... Um, See if we can discover what it was that caused Jesus to marvel. But let's bow for a moment of prayer before we get started, okay? Mm. Jesus, our living hope, we marvel <laughs> that you call us your own, that you created us, that you put up with us, that you love us, that you call us, that you want us to have fellowship with you. We marvel at all of that. Today, we ask that as we look into your word, you would be honored and glorified and blessed with the words that are spoken by the meditations of our heart. You are our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, our living hope. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, so let's look at this story and, um, and just read it together, okay? I don't know what version you use. It doesn't matter to me much. <clears throat> I use the New King James Version, um, and so bear with me. Uh, verse 5. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed. He can't even move. He's dreadfully tormented, very sick. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. 
For I also am a man under authority, and I have soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come here, and he comes here, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. When Jesus heard that, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west, yay, that's us, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. You guys have read this a million times before. So, I want us to look at this story, though, maybe with some fresh eyes, and look a little bit closely. We want to figure out who it was that was actually involved, how we can identify, if we can, and what we can learn so many centuries later. So in verse 5, it states that Jesus is entering Capernaum. And this would have been roughly 80 to 100 miles to the north and east from his hometown down in, in the southern region, over a mountain range in the region of Galilee. This area at this time was under Roman rule, and that was no fun. Caesar's army had conquered the entire region, and Caesar had decided to put 100 soldiers, at least, in each region. And their job was to keep law and order and to keep a watchful eye on the residents. As I said, it's no fun. The man in the story who we see right at the very beginning was the military leader of that hundred men, and hence the term centurion, right? A centipede has a hundred legs, a centenarian has lived a hundred years, and a centurion had a hundred soldiers under him. These are tough, well-schooled in the art of keeping law and order. They were not to be messed with. They would be Cody. Right? Just don't, just don't, don't mess with him. This guy was powerful. This centurion, like the rest of them, had the authority to be large and in charge. He may not have been Sylvester Stallone. And to your sorrow, you missed a slide with Sylvester Stallone in it. But, um, but he was a big deal nonetheless, okay? And that's why he got the job of being a centurion here in that area. And yet, I find it interesting that in verse 5, this tough guy approaches Jesus pleading with him. Wait, what? Do centurions plead with lowly Jewish preachers? The text doesn't indicate that he pulled Jesus aside for a conversation either. It, it indicates that it happened in a very public place with lots of people looking on. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about it. So maybe as we look for what Jesus marveled about, 
we should note, make note that this big burly soldier was desperate. He was desperate enough to push through his self-importance, push through any awkwardness that he felt, and push through any embarrassment to approach Jesus. Also, we'll see later, there was an element of risk in that as well. The next thing you notice, that he isn't asking for something for himself. Rather, he's making a case for a servant of his who is in his home and dreadfully ill. So doesn't that seem a little out of character? Um, do centurions really care for lowly servants? Already, we're marveling a little bit, aren't we? And how did this Gentile, this Gentile guy, come to believe that Jesus even cared enough to stop and listen to his rather small and insignificant request? Or that, I mean, that he would even stop? Make note that this tough soldier had a heart, maybe even compassion for others, and he believed also that Jesus had compassion and was interested enough to stop and listen to a small, insignificant matter. Then notice the way he addressed Jesus. In verse 6, how did he address him? It's okay if you talk back. As Lord, right. So remember, this guy is not a Jew. He is a Gentile. And Gentiles were normally, usually, characterized as idol worshipers. And also, Romans were not known to honor God um, or call anyone Lord except Caesar. So this guy clearly broke through that barrier as well and addressed Jesus as Lord. Now, in many times, many cases in Scripture, you see different nuances of meaning with the term Lord. But in this one, it appears as though it was pretty, pretty significant that he addressed Jesus as Lord. It looks like respect. It looks like respect for who he believed Jesus to be. I believe in that instant he believed Jesus to be Messiah. Something that some of the most best educated, most religious Jews of that day missed, and our day, missed altogether. So, verse 7. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Well, it was interesting to me that Jesus responded before the centurion even asked him the question. It doesn't say that he said, hey, Jesus, would you come and heal my servant? You know, it, what's that about? There is a scripture that says he knows what we need before we even ask. Yeah. Um, the other thing was, he said, I'll come to your house and do this. What, was, what is the problem with that? He's a Gentile. Jesus is a Jew. He got criticized all the time for going into those places he wasn't even supposed to go. You don't do that. You just don't. Verse 8, the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Wow. Stop and think about that a minute. So here's a Roman soldier admitting to a poor Jewish rabbi that he is not worthy 
he's unworthy. Note the importance of humility. Humility. Then he says, just speak a word and my servant will be healed. In this statement, this nameless centurion showed respect and reverence for the awesome power of God, which in my estimation, something that is sadly lacking in many church circles today. To our detriment, we don't have to be stiff and stogy about it, but neither should we be casual and indifferent to the awesome power of God. See, we've been given this awesome privilege of speaking to a God who is so far above us that it's truly incredible. And yet, he's truly listening for our call, and he cares deeply about us. So we should always remember to approach him with the reverence he is due and also the love that he truly desires. So this whole thing of eminence and transcendence, that theological paradox has been in the topic of religious debate, I'll say, for eons. To many people living in our modern world, God seems remote. He seems to be unconcerned. He seems to be living far off in some light years away dimension called heaven and that, my friend, makes it very difficult to believe that God cares about you. There were Enlightenment philosophers. There have been, and there are more today. I'm, I'm interested. Um, I marvel. Um, everything old becomes new again. But uh, here it comes again. Um, the, those who picture God as some sort of... Um, divine watchmaker. He just created this amazing universe and then he's just sitting back and watching it tick. That's one view of God. But scripture clearly indicates a very different picture of God. He's not far away. He's intimately close. He has spoken over the generations of time. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. He actively intervened in the history of time on behalf of his own chosen people. He led them out of Egypt into the promised land. Years later, God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And now his spirit is alive and well and working in those of us who believe. Scripture reveals a God who's neither distant nor uncaring, but an approachable Father God intensely interested in the world he has made and especially the creatures in it. We know God is approachable, but there's another great danger on the other end of that spectrum. When we doubt the biblical narrative... Sometimes there can be a lack of reverence. Sometimes I wonder if we've gone a bit too far in that direction in our casual, buddy-buddy approach to God. Some of the more liturgical traditions kind of put us to shame. They go too far in the other direction 
but they put us to shame in terms of awe for who God is. It's interesting how different groups seek to remind themselves, the liturgical groups reminding themselves of God's active presence in this world and yet how he is to be revered. There is a, in the synagogues, I noticed in doing a little research, there's this phrase which I won't even attempt to say in Hebrew, but it's on the cabinet where they keep the scroll of the Torah and that, that saying, the words mean, know before whom you stand. What they're saying is, don't forget that you're standing in the presence of God himself. An appropriate reminder for all of us. In this passage, the centurion seemed to sense that he was indeed standing in the presence of God. But he found him to be approachable as well, even easy to identify with. I, I found verse 9 so interesting again. It reads, For I also, the centurion said, am un a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come here, and he comes here, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I think the most significant word in that verse to me on this reading was the word also. Not only was the centurion recognizing the chain of command, father, son, but he actually identified with Jesus in his position of authority. Sure, he had command over a hundred soldiers, but he was also under the authority of Caesar, the commander-in-chief of the Roman army, and he had no illusions about who had given him the authority that he had. The centurion recognized something that the religious leaders missed. Jesus is Messiah. And as Messiah, he was sent from God under the supreme command of the God of the universe. And as such, he has unlimited power, power to save, power to deliver, power to heal. Take note of what the centurion recognized, that incredible chain of command, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, and the power in those names. Pretty marvelous. Verse 10, when Jesus heard that, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This must have made the disciples a little bit, uh, hmm, feeling less than about their faith walk. Man, sometimes the truth just hurts a little bit. Yikes. Jesus goes on to let the Jewish folk know in the rest of the verses, these chosen ones, that they might need to get used to an inconvenient truth. You're going to need to set out a few more chairs at the table, folks. There's going to be some people joining us around that table that you did not anticipate. And there's going to be more of them than you anticipated. So... 
Set out a few more plates and forks. The crowd's coming. So what was it that caused Jesus to marvel in this passage? Two words. Great faith. In this incident, there's this centurion, not even a Jew, unschooled Gentile, no background in Jewish tradition, no temple study, no Bible school, none of that. For this man to demonstrate faith at all was incredible, but great faith. An anomaly of nature just happened. But it was one that made it possible for a miracle to take place and a teachable moment for the disciples. In the other incident um, that I mentioned found in Mark 6, 5 and 6, Jesus marvels there at a situation in which he found people in the temple who had no faith. Jesus' ministry was stifled in that environment because there was no faith, and people missed out on a blessing. Isn't that incredible? I believe there was something about the centurion's approach to Jesus that absolutely captured his heart before the conversation was even over, and I think it touched his heart in such a way that wild horses were not going to keep him from doing what the centurion asked him to do. Hebrews 11, that great chapter, that hall of fame of faith, in verse 6, of course that chapter defines what faith is, but verse 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's a pretty good summation of the centurion's faith, his great faith. So it begs the question, maybe not for you, but it did for me. What was there about the centurion's faith that made it so great that the very Son of God marveled? A few things. There was a desperation or maybe a diligence that made him willing to plead regardless of the personal risk. There was a compassion for those unable to advocate for themselves, a selflessness that put the needs of others above his own. There was a humility. There was a sense of unworthiness. There was a distinct sense of respect for the awe. There was awe. There was reverence for who God is. And there was a definite recognition of the power and authority of Almighty God. So, as the commercial says, what's in your wallet? I think it goes without saying that all of us, or we wouldn't be here, um, we would much rather be those with a faith so great that it makes God marvel than be those with such a lack of faith that it makes him marvel and not be able to do miracles. When we approach God, do we do that with a recognition of his power? Do we have a proper sense of awe and reverence 
for who he is? Do we approach humbly, keenly aware of our total unworthiness? Do we have a compassion for others that puts their needs above ours? Do we diligently seek him? They were sobering questions for me. Hmm. Let's bow our heads. Father, in the best way that we know how, we approach you recognizing power. We've seen your power at work in our lives and in the lives of others around us in this world through the pages of history. Wow, your power. I pray that you would give us a proper sense of awe and reverence. Mm. I pray that you would work on us in the area of humility. We are so, so, so in love with ourselves. But we're unworthy. Even the best of us, the highest, the most intelligent, the most highly educated, the wealthiest, it doesn't matter. When we stand before you, we're unworthy. There's no way. It wouldn't be grace if we could deserve it. We don't. But thank you. Help us, Father. Help us, Lord, in the area of compassion. Help us to not be so aware of our own things and what we need that we forget that there's a world of people hurting all around us that can't even advocate for themselves that we should be bringing before your throne before we talk about our own needs. Father, help us <laughs> to be diligent, to diligently seek you and to figure out what in the world that means. We are yours we don't look too good, but we are, after all, the sheep of your pasture. And we are pretty hopeless without you. So we just thank you so much, Father God, for who you are. Sitting enthroned above in the highest place. There's no way that our praise could lift you any higher than you already are. The only thing that we can do is make sure that in our own personal lives, you are high and lifted up so that all people who look on might be drawn to you. We ask it, Father, in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus, Son of God. Holy Spirit, be with us. Teach us. Teach us to be more like you. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, 